Have you ever noticed you answer the question, how are you doing with your emotional state? How you doing? Tired. How are you? Okay. I wonder how happy people actually are. How many of you would consider yourselves extremely happy? Mm-hmm. We're most miserable. I recognize whenever you start a service, I don't like for people to come up and say, aren't you excited to be here? Because I acknowledge there are a lot of people who aren't excited to be here. I recognize that it's a cloudy, rainy day. There's a lot of people who struggle to get out of bed, making it here, arguing with each other on the way in the door. They're barely here, not excited to be here. We answer how we are doing in accordance with our emotional state. But the Bible helps us to move beyond that. I asked just a moment ago, how many of you would consider yourselves extremely happy for people? Maybe five. Which means this message is for you. You four can go to the car. You're good. How happy are people today? Have you ever wondered, were people actually happier in the past? I think about my life, which is getting longer and longer, thankfully. And I think back to the late 1980s, and I think that was the greatest time ever. I lived life on a BMX bike. I had no bills. The only pressure I may have experienced in the very late 80s was the pressure of pre-algebra. They had not yet told us McDonald's was bad for us. People could smoke. We didn't even know cigarettes were bad in the 80s. People had liquidity. They loved the country. The world was just good. Were people happier in the past? Do living conditions affect all of this? In my study, I came across several different surveys and studies. I found it very interesting. Life satisfaction. And happiness very widely, both within and among people and even countries. It only takes a glimpse at the data to see that people are distributed along a wide spectrum of happiness levels. Let's dig a little deeper into that. Here is some real deep truth for you. Richer people tend to say they are happier than poorer people. How many of you is that breaking news to? Absolutely no one. The fact is, richer countries tend to have higher average happiness levels. So the evidence suggests that income and life satisfaction tend to go together. 2015, the most recent survey I could find on this statistic, statistic is the word, if you were wondering, it's statistic. Now I've lost my place, I've blown my rhythm. Examine the life circumstances and individual happiness levels of men and women in 73 different countries. So if I were to ask you right now, on average, are women happier than men or are men happier than women? We probably all would have an opinion. Here's the fact. 73 different countries and nearly all of them, there was no significant difference whatsoever between men and women's happiness levels. So there. We're even at least in that. Which generation is the happiest? I found this intriguing. Millennials say that they are the happiest generation with 57% of millennials saying that they are happy. 
Next would be Generation X, rating in at 52% happiness level. That's me, and that's accurate. I'm only happy about 52% of the time. Coming in miserably in last place, the boomers. The boomers are the least happiest generation at 41%. So when we say they're miserable, we now have statistics to back it up. Millennials, you say we hate millennials. That's probably part of the reason you're miserable. 57, 52, 51, it's a fact. Here was something interesting and defeating and saddening while we talk about happiness levels. They found that people report being the happiest in their entire lives between the ages of 30 and 34. So enjoy that run. Because after that, it's over. How many of you are in that group right now, 30 to 34? Cool. How many of you are super happy right now? How many of you did that just scare to death? This is it. This is the mountaintop. This is the apex. All downhill from there. You know what else I found interesting? They say, statistically speaking, the absolute valley for the happiness in a man's life is the age of 47. That is when he bounces off the bottom and things get happier from there. April 5th of this year, I will turn 47 years old. I'm at the bottom. This is it. Just imagine, I'll only get happier moving forward, but I'm about to enter a 12-month stretch of abject misery. And you're going to be here because I don't miss church. I'm going to be here with you, influencing you. They say that friends help. A Gallup poll showed that six to seven hours of socializing daily results in the highest level of happiness. Unless you have my personality, in which case six to seven hours of socializing sounds like a prison sentence. The reality is such that it is assessed that you are in control of your own happiness only up to 40%. Which means, according to statistics and data and studies, 60% of your happiness is outside of your control. If I were to ask you what would make you truly happy... If I were to inquire, how do you imagine you could be happier, most of us would begin that answer with the word, if. If I had. If such was. We call that the greener grass syndrome. It might better be called the greener grass myth, causing all of us to admit or wonder if there's just something out there in life that would bring us Better satisfaction, higher levels of happiness. Benjamin Franklin made this insightful comment about our Constitution, which guarantees everybody life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. He wrote, please note that the Constitution only gives people the right to pursue happiness. You have to catch it for yourself. Another author said, the modern approach to happiness is to remove any and all suffering, avoid pain. Or if you can't, sedate it. Eliminate disease, discomfort, and injustice. But the reality is, no amount of money, no amount of power, can eliminate from our lives hardship. I found it interesting that the root of happiness is the Middle English word, hap. 
which indicates, factually speaking, that according to most humanity, whatever happens to us dictates our happiness. But there is a better way. There is a higher aim. One of the fruits of the Spirit is that of joy. Happiness is natural. Joy is supernatural. And we will establish that this morning. We've been working through, for two weeks, Galatians chapter 5. The Apostle Paul is writing what he terms is the fruit of the Spirit. Indicating to us that if we will walk in submission to the Spirit. If we will walk in union with the Lord. Then this will be evident in our lives. This is what he says in Galatians 5 verses 22 and 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, Peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. And this morning, I'm not going to talk to you merely about joy in general, but about Christian joy, about spiritual joy. You see, in the New Testament, there is a, a connection. It's inescapable between the Holy Spirit And joy. Can't avoid it. Let me give you a few examples. In Luke chapter 10 and verse 21, we have an account of Jesus. And this is what we read. In that hour, Jesus rejoiced in the Spirit. Paul was talking about the believers in Thessalonica. And in 1 Thessalonians 1, the second part of verse 6, he said they received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Ghost. In Romans, Paul is instructing us in Romans 14, 17 this way, for the kingdom of God is not meat and drink, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. The New Testament pairs joy with the Holy Ghost in a way that it does not pair with other emotions. We are told that it is possible to grieve the Spirit, but we do not see the sorrow of the Holy Spirit being within us. The anger of the Holy Spirit being something within us, it is clear that joy is the fruit of the Spirit. So the question is, how do I live in joy? And I must be clear, I'm not talking about an adaptation of your personality. I'm not talking about an external modification of your behavior. In fact, I'm not even going to drive at your emotional condition. I am going to attempt to establish in your mind and in your heart scriptural facts, foundational truths about your walk with Jesus. Here's what I know. The first thing is this. I can walk, I can live in joy because of my salvation. Now that sounds really basic, doesn't it? I know Jesus Christ as my Savior, therefore I should rejoice. Knowing that Jesus conquered death for us and purchased our salvation through His blood brings a deep sense of joy. So if I were to ask you right now, how many of you are glad that you're saved? You know that you are under baptistic and church attendance obligation to say, me, I'm glad I'm saved. Because if you don't do that, you're thinking, maybe I'm not. If I don't jump and get excited, maybe people will think 
I'm barely paying attention. We already know it. We're looking at your face. I'm not saying this elicits an emotional response, though no doubt about it. Certainly, it's established within Scripture that there is an emotional response attached to it. However, it is fact. It's part of it. Colossians 1.13, Christ hath delivered us from the power of darkness and hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear Son. Before we became believers, we were members of the kingdom of Satan. That's a scary thought. The kingdom of darkness. But after salvation in Christ, we're adopted into the family of God. We become citizens of kingdom of heaven and we're translated into the kingdom of light. Paul said this in Colossians 2. And you, being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened together, brought to life with him, that is Jesus, having forgiven you all trespasses, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to the cross. It is fact that I am no longer in Christ under the penalty of sin. That brings joy. In Nehemiah chapter 8, Ezra is preaching. He's preaching to a very large crowd of people, thirty to 50,000 people gathered in Jerusalem, listening as he simply articulates the law of Moses. As he reads the law of Moses to this remnant of people that have returned to Jerusalem, the people begin to weep. They begin to cry because they are being reminded of what God expected of them and they're being shown how woefully they have lived up to God's expectations and they're weeping and they're mourning and they're crying and it indicates their repentance, their confession. They are contrite. They are broken over their failure to God. Ezra and Nehemiah have to step forward and, in effect, stop everybody from weeping and crying. And they say in Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 10, the joy of the Lord is our strength. And what they're saying is this, after confession and after repentance and the weeping, you no longer need to weep about that penalty. Move forward now in the joy of the Lord and let that strengthen you. Your salvation infuses you spiritually with joy. Let me give you a little glimpse into heaven. It's a very interesting verse, and I wish there was a way to articulate it fully or to give us a sense of the emotion behind it, even the sound that accompanies it. In Luke chapter 15, in verse 10, we read this, I say unto you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner that repenteth. Think about that. When one sinner on earth repents of their sin and places their faith in Jesus Christ for salvation, the Bible, Jesus tells us that in heaven the angels of God are filled with joy over that. They're aware that worthy is the Lamb. It is intriguing to see the correspondence between salvation and joy. In Acts chapter 8 and verse 8, we're told that a large number of people in Samaria accepted the word of God. Many there were delivered from evil spirits, were healed of diseases, many were saved, and the Bible says there was great joy in that city. The Ethiopian eunuch, when he encountered Philip and was saved and baptized in Acts 8.39, it says this in the second part of that verse, he went on his way rejoicing. 
When the Philippian jailer is saved, we read this in Acts 16.34, and when he had brought them into his house, he set meat before them and rejoiced, believing in God with all his house. So I would say to you, there should be an emotional response to salvation that is joyous. But I'm going deeper than that. I'm not after emotional adjustment. I am telling you, factually speaking, joy and salvation are inextricably linked. When you are saved, you are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, and He is the Spirit of joy. The fact is, you walk, you live in joy because of your salvation, but deeper than that, because of the hope that you have. There's a unique thing about joy. And I mean it is singular and it is unique to the believer. It is not something that the rest of the world would have. It is the idea of hope. Now again, we see it all over the New Testament. Paul captures it in Romans 15, 13. He writes this, Now the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that ye may abound in hope through the power of the Holy Ghost. Joy and peace and hope are connected. Now he's going to come back and he's going to describe the ground of this Holy Spirit empowered, joy producing hope. He'll write this in Romans 5. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom also we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. We have hope as believers, that the world does not have, and we rejoice in that hope. Joy and peace elicit hope. Hope and peace bring us that joy. We rejoice in that hope. Everything that happens in this life to us is a temporary status. We are navigating life with a hope out before us that cannot be extinguished. Paul, I'm sorry, Peter was writing in 1 Peter 1. Speaking of the unseen Jesus, yet the hope that we have in his arrival, 1 Peter 1.8, whom having not seen, ye love, in whom though now ye see him not, yet believing, ye rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. We have a hope that Jesus Christ is coming again. That's singular. That is a unique thing. That's not happiness In lieu of our circumstances, it is joy in the sense it is a supernatural thing. When Paul was writing to the believers in Thessalonica, he found that they were grieving, they were mourning over dead brothers and sisters in Christ. And he corrected them, don't mourn like those who don't have Christ and have no hope, but comfort each other with the reality that you have hope beyond this world. It's a beautiful reality. I walk in joy because of the hope that I have. The Thessalonians received the message of the gospel in much affliction, but also with joy. The same with the believers of the Gentiles in the book of Acts. It mirrors what Jesus did when he was on the cross. The writer of Hebrews tells us about the mindset, the heart set, of Jesus Christ. The example of Jesus on the cross in Hebrews 12 and verse 2, we read this. Whenever you're weary, whenever you feel like you can't go on, look unto Jesus, 
The author and the finisher of our faith, get this, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. Because of the hope of that which is to come, I walk in joy. Because of the hope that I have which is to come. Now listen, I don't know that that changes our emotional condition. But the fact is, it is scripturally true that we have hope that the world does not have. I can walk in joy because of my salvation. I can walk in joy because of the hope that I have before me. And this third one is the hardest one to communicate because it just seems the least exciting. I walk in joy because it brings spiritual maturity. Because of my spiritual maturity, I can walk in joy. I hate the maturation process. I don't like getting old. I don't want any more responsibility. I already told you, greatest days of my life, a little BMX bike rolling all over Northern Virginia, riding my bike to 7-Eleven to get a big gulp or a Slurpee with my parents' money. No bills, no stress, no challenges in life. Those were good days. I don't like maturation. How many of you love to put a suit on your little toddler and you step back and you think to yourself, you look like a little man and he's miserable and you put a tie on his neck, right? Put a tie on his neck. Have you ever considered how dumb an invention the tie is? Have you ever thought about it? This is literally an ancient execution device. That's not an exaggeration. This is an ancient execution device. This is a noose that I willingly this morning, somewhat willingly, I mean I I have to, somewhat willingly put on my neck, tied a noose, and then pulled it just tight enough to allow air to continue down so that I could stay alive but not loose enough to actually be comfortable, just enough to sweat good and constrict my airway. Fact is, if you wanted to have a little fun, you could come up to me and you could grab the back portion of this tie with one hand and you could grab this knot with the other and you could cinch it and you could send me to Jesus. (laughs) Because it is an actual execution device. It's a noose. So when you put the tie on your little man and you want him to look like a big boy and you're telling him this is all a part of growing up, immediately you're saying the maturation process is pretty miserable. The maturation process is pretty uncomfortable. Let me share a truth with you about joy and maturity and what brings it about. James writes this in James 1-2, My brethren, count it all joy when ye fall into diverse temptations, when you suffer, when all kinds of various suffering and trials comes into your life, count it all joy. There's a unique difference between those of us who know Christ and those who do not know Christ. And that unique difference ought to be our ability to see the value of even welcome suffering when it comes. Note in that verse, James did not say, count it all joy if various trials and temptation arrive at your door. He said, when, because trials and suffering is a given. It would make a lot more sense to us if he said, count it all joy when you escape diverse temptations. 
Count it all joy when they come for someone else and not you. That would certainly seem to connect better with the idea of being joyful, but that's not what he says. Count it all joy when you fall into diverse trials and suffering and temptation. Even the word fall into communicates unexpected suddenness. This came out of nowhere. This happened and we weren't prepared for it. When that occurs, you have a decision to make. And I say that according to scriptural fact. Now, James did not say you're going to enjoy your trials. James did not say you're going to feel joyful. You're going to feel all joy when you are in trials. But he said, count it all joy when... Out of nowhere, you fall suddenly and unexpectedly into all shapes and sizes of suffering and trials. What he is communicating is of the utmost importance to us. He is saying count. The Greek word indicates that that is an accounting term. You have to reckon. You have to calculate. You have to make what I would term a business decision. When suffering arrives, when trials come, when temptation comes for me unexpectedly and suddenly, and I find myself in hardship, I am not going to feel joyful. But I have a business decision to make in that moment. I have to count it all joy when this happens to me because it elicits within me spiritual maturity and maturation is a challenging process. James concludes his thought here in verse 3. He says, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience, but let patience have her perfect work, that ye may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. That's maturation. The very word perfect as he uses it there refers to having an undivided relationship with Christ. Let patience work her perfect work. Let this refining process happen. Patience even is endurance with joy. Not merely bearing up under, but enduring with joy. Trials have a way of spiritually refining us. And James is articulating a truth. You are going to endure hardship. It's going to happen. It is a given. And what it tends to do to the human condition is to beat us down. Anxiety and depression and defeat creep in. We are broken in a broken and contrite spirit. Who can bear up under it? The fact is there are a lot of believers who allow their view of the world to be completely dimmed and darkened by suffering and trials and hardship that arise. And I'm not saying feel all joy. I'm saying you got to make a business decision to count it joy that you are going to be spiritually matured through this refining season. And man, that's tough. So what that means is when you are unfairly treated, when you are unjustly spoken about, you have to make a business decision to count it all joy that you are going to be spiritually matured through that process. Financial disaster. No fault of your own arrives. A health situation beyond your control. You have to make a business decision to count it all joy. 
And can I say this? Sometimes the only handle that we have to hold on to is that this will spiritually mature us. And that's got to be enough. That's got to be enough. You say, you're saying to me, pastor, that I might encounter a trial and there's no miracle waiting at the end of it. Maybe not. Maybe the healing that you'll experience is when you're in the presence of your heavenly father. You mean there's a trial that could come into my life and could last until I'm put in the ground? Sure, it could. So what you're saying is the rest of my days would be dimmed and dark and defeated and depressed and anxiety laden. No, I'd say you've got to make a business decision to reckon it joy because Patience, endurance with joy, is going to bring you into a greater undivided relationship with Christ. And spiritual maturity is all I can offer you. And it's got to be enough. That's tough. I have hardship. What's the payoff? Spiritual maturity. Are you being flippant? Are you being funny? No, that's all I have. And I have to make a business decision to count it all joy. God wants us to be full of joy. Not happiness, which is a natural thing. Joy, which is a supernatural thing. Am I saying that you'll be happy all the time? Full of laughter, perpetually smiling, always excited? No. The joy of Scripture is more profound than that. The early church understood that. The early believers who endured persecution grasped that. No matter what was going on in their lives, one author said they had holy optimism. Well, the world is changing and circumstances elude me to bring me happiness. The fact is a holy optimism lives in the reality that I am saved. I have a hope that this world does not know of and I am being spiritually matured. And I make the business decision to live in joy because of that. Of those early believers, one said it was because they were a joyful people that the early Christians were able to conquer the world. Let me conclude by reading what one author said. The joy of the Lord is not the same as the joy of the world. The joy of the world is more of a temporary pleasure than joy. The world's joy is always nagged by some incompleteness, some lack, some unfulfilling thing, some missing ingredient, some need still existing. There is not a completeness. There is not a complete sense of assurance, confidence, and satisfaction. There is the knowledge, the haunting awareness that something can go wrong. Circumstances can change. Some situation can arise that will disturb this joy. The haunting awareness always keeps the world's joy from being full and complete, assuring and satisfying. But our unique joy as believers begins with the fact that Christ lives within us. We belong to Him. We are eternally alive in Him. And this joy that we have, the world can never understand. This should be a joyous place. That doesn't mean it needs to be an atmosphere of excitement. It does not mean we perpetually smile or laughs always come easy. But we have patience, endurance in this life with joy. And I say to you what I said a moment ago, sometimes that's nothing more than a business decision. 
Because if you are waiting for circumstances to change, if you're living underneath the banner of the greener grass myth, you will always have this haunting awareness that something is missing. Or in the moments where it's good, it's not going to be good for long because you know your track record, something's going to change, something bad's going to happen, a need still exists, it's always incomplete. But in Christ, we have joy. Why? Factually speaking, we have the Holy Spirit of joy indwelling us because of our salvation. Factually speaking, we have a unique and singular hope to us as believers that this world is not all there is, there's always more in Christ. And because of spiritual maturity. And at times, your spiritual maturity is the only handle you have. And it has to be enough. And you make the business decision to live with joy because of it. Would you please bow your heads just for a moment? Thanks for listening this week to the Graceway Baptist Church Podcast. For more information about our church and our ministries, Head on over to our website at gracewaycharlotte.org. We are a church located in South Charlotte. We are growing and our ministries are doing big things for Christ. If you're looking for a way to get plugged into what we're doing, email us at info at gracewaycharlotte.org. Also, stay in the loop with everything happening by following us on Facebook and Instagram. Our handle is Graceway Charlotte. Thanks again for listening to the Graceway Charlotte podcast. We'll see you next week.